Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, we start a new series called Greater Than, looking at the book of Hebrews. Uh, this book of Hebrews is actually a book <clears throat> that we just finished looking at and reading through in our daily scripture reading and prayer call, which, by the way, I'll just plug again. Still highly encourage anyone who might want to join uh, and is available at 12 p.m. every day from 12 to 12.15. We read through scripture. We pray in response to it. Uh, but we just finished the book of Hebrews, reading through it together. Uh, now, this book is a book whose author is unknown, <clears throat> but it was written uh, by someone who essentially argues that Jesus is superior to all others. That's what we're going to look at, that Jesus is greater than everything. Now, the context of the book uh, is actually in a, in a place much like our context today in the sense that it was a very pluralistic society with many different religions and many different worldviews that people could essentially pick from. And much like in Philippians, the uh, series that we just ended with, uh, the writer is essentially explaining how believers in Jesus can deal with suffering in everything that they might, all the suffering that they might experience in life. And his answer to why we can um, persevere through suffering is because Jesus, as Savior, is superior. And so as a result, he shows that Jesus is greater than any philosophy or religion or prophet or idea. And that this ought to then bring hope. And he gives all the reasons why. And he brazenly confronts the idea that Jesus could be categorized with anyone else. Now, I want to put before you a question. And it's a question that we will come back to throughout this series again and again. Uh, if you are a Christian, if you identify to be a Christian, I want you to be thinking about this question going forward. Do you view Christ in the terms that are laid out in this passage and in the terms that we will see throughout this series? We'll ask that question continually. Uh, if you don't identify uh, as being a Christian, and maybe you're curious about what, what all of this is, or maybe you believed at one time and you're just not sure what you believe anymore, I'm glad that you are here. But the question I would put before you is, what assumptions do you have about who Jesus is and maybe more importantly, where have those assumptions come from? And for all of us, do we believe that Jesus is who he is described as here in the book of Hebrews and for us today, particularly in this opening passage of Hebrews 1? We will see that there can be no middle ground in understanding or believing who Christ is. 
Christ is either superior to all, as he claimed himself to be, and as we will see in this passage, or he is nothing. It is one or the other. There is no middle ground. And so again, I ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? Now, let me set a bit of a proper stage uh, for this passage and the things that we'll be trying to accomplish today. Uh, For many, uh, the belief uh, that your religion is uh, religion or your philosophies or ideas uh, or worldview is superior to others is often viewed as being closed-minded or bigoted or even impossible. Right? The assertion of superiority is often problematic. And to a degree, I actually I do agree with that idea. The reason being is that we have seen all too many times the ill effects of people assuming themselves to be superior. When one group or belief system believes themselves to be uh, superior to everyone else, that's extraordinarily problematic. I mean, wars and violence and oppression and all sorts of depravities are rooted in wrong views of superiority. Here's the real problem. The real problem with those um, perspectives of superiority is that those who are not intrinsically superior to others assert themselves to be superior to others. And that is actually the problem. So just as examples, uh, in our own history, the race-based human trafficking, or as uh, some might uh, might say, slave-owning, slave owners, human traffickers, they viewed themselves as superior to those that they enslaved. Uh, The human traffickers, though, were not and are not intrinsically or inherently superior to anyone, right? They only believe themselves to be, and that's extraordinarily problematic. Uh, The warmongering nation that exists in the world and has existed all throughout history, these warmongering nations assert their power on a weaker nation because they believe themselves or their race or their culture or whatever to be superior to others. And so they must assert themselves on these weaker nations. Uh, Even in just our own uh, modern day world, the ruthless business tycoon who crushes smaller and seemingly insignificant companies, they do that because they feel superior to these other smaller companies. I mean, none of these entities are intrinsically or inherently superior and yet believe themselves to be. And that always, always, always goes bad. But here's the difference with what we're talking about with Jesus. So if God is God, then by definition, he is superior to all else. This is not because of a mere belief or assertion of superiority, but rather because he actually intrinsically, inherently is superior. Right? For example, no, uh, there's no, um, with an artist, as an example, an artist is intrinsically superior to the painting that they create. Uh, an author is superior to the stories that they write. They are objectively superior. That ought to not be a controversy. And so in the same way, God, as creator of all things, as the master of history's narrative, he is superior. And so whatever views one might have about God, 
if God is God, this ought not to be a controversy, that he is superior to all else. Now the author, back to our passage, the author is stating particular assertions about Christ's superiority. However, claiming Christ's superiority is only valid if Christ is intrinsically, inherently superior. And so the question then becomes, who is Jesus exactly? And if Christ is not intrinsically superior, then he is no different than the human traffickers, the warmongering nations, or the ruthless business tycoon. But if he is intrinsically superior, if he is superior in the way that an artist is superior to a painting, then Christ's superiority is no real assertion, it's just fact. And so what we need to see is how the author describes who Christ is in order to rightly determine whether or not Christ should be understood as inherently superior to all. And I want to look at three things that the, uh, the author draws out in particular. Uh, the, in, uh, here, what we're going to see is uh, that the role of Christ, the nature of Christ, and the triumph of Christ show the ways that he is superior. And this will also help frame what we'll see all throughout this series, the role, the nature, and the triumph of Christ. First, uh, the role of Christ. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2. Really important, interesting things that are happening there that show the superiority of Christ in his role. What I mean by that is there's two important ideas used to describe how God speaks in verses 1 and 2. Right? The first thing that we see is that there's two time periods described as long ago and last days. Okay? So these have to do with the time periods of how God speaks. And then the second thing is that there are two ways that God spoke during those two periods, long ago, last days. Let me show you what I mean. So in verse 1, the author speaks of God speaking long ago. The author tells us what he is referring to uh, and how God speaks. He says that he spoke through our fathers and the prophets. This is how God spoke. Now, this is a reference to the Old Testament structures of divine communication, but he clarifies what he's thinking by saying that, he, that God spoke at many times and in different ways, and in many ways. Now, these English statements are actually much weaker than uh, some of the, the Greek terminology that's being used there. Uh, many biblical commentators note that the, the Greek words that would have been used uh, in this passage are actually really um, emphasizing the fragmentary reality of the Old Testament revelation, <clears throat> the ways that God spoke previously. Uh, and so, and, and they describe that, it describes it in a way that our English doesn't fully convey. Uh, but what's happening is the author is essentially describing a unified, but inconclusive and fragmented word from God in the Old Testament through fathers, through prophets. Uh, for example, we know that in the, Old, in the Old Testament, there were a variety of different ways that God would speak to his people, that he would reveal himself to his people. Uh, he did it through visions and theophanies and dreams and angelic appearances and the prophets. However, none of these sufficiently gave full revelation of who God is. In contrast, though, right, so that was the old way, you know, long ago, quote-unquote. 
In contrast to that, we also then see here in our passage that God speaks in the last days. In verse 2, you see that. In the last days, it says that God now speaks through who? He now speaks through his son. And there's a couple of really important, interesting things to note there. You know, one unfortunate thing uh, when we talk about the last days uh, is that when we think, when we talk, when we hear the term last days, often we think about the end times. However, the New Testament doesn't use that term that way. More often than not, the quote-unquote last days are referring to the time after Christ. So the apostles and even modern-day believers in Jesus are in the last days. And so the last days are essentially the final phase of God's uh, redemptive plan that he began. Right, so that's one, one important thing to note. The other important thing to note is what it means uh, is from the time of Christ's first coming, God has now changed the way he reveals himself to his people. Now God reveals himself through his Son. The reason why that's important is that Jesus is not a prophet who speaks about the revelations of God, but rather, as John 1 tells us, Jesus is the very word of God. And the difference is essentially this. Prophets of old, from long ago, they always would say, thus says the Lord, and then they would speak. In other words, they would say that these are not my words. Rather, these are words that are coming from God. Jesus, however, never said, thus says the Lord. Do you know what Jesus always said when he spoke truth? He always said, I say to you. But why is that important? It's because Jesus is not a revelation among many. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the word of God. That is his role. And that makes him superior to all other revelations of God. It is Jesus. But the second thing we have to consider is not just the role of Jesus, but also the nature of Jesus Christ. You know, every other world religion has prophets and holy men uh, that claim to know the way of God. Jesus, however, claimed much, much more. I mean, consider the beautiful terms in which Jesus is described here in this passage. Uh, particularly, look at verse 3. It says that God reveals himself through Christ because he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. My goodness, what a statement that is. That statement, the exact imprint could literally be translated that Jesus is the exact expression of the substance. That Jesus is the very substance of God. His, God's glory, his majesty, his splendor is found in Jesus. This is the intrinsic and inherent nature of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God's glory in human form. I mean, this is what Jesus meant in John 14 when he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God's glory in human form. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Consider those words and the depths of those words. I mean, it reminds me of 
all the ways that God's glory is described all throughout Scripture and what that then means about who Jesus is. Specifically, I uh, think about Exodus 33. Uh, if you know that story, it's, it's about essentially a conversation that's happening between God and Moses. And in verse 9 of Exodus 33, it notes that God appeared and spoke to Moses through the Shekinah glory, Shekinah glory cloud. And then in verse 11, it notes that this was a face-to-face, quote-unquote, face-to-face conversation. Yet as Moses knew, God was obviously speaking through a veiled medium of this cloud, which is why in verse 18, God or Moses begs God, God, show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And it's clear in that passage, that, God, that Moses desperately wanted to see the glory of God, but this was impossible. Why? Because listen to God's response in verse 20 through 23. God says this, But God said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but, not, but my face must not be seen. And there is a glory that Moses could not look upon. For if he looked upon it, it would have killed him. And what we are seeing here in Hebrews 1 is the declaration that Jesus is that glory in human form. In no uncertain terms, Jesus in John 14, and the writer of Hebrews here, is saying that Jesus is God. As Colossians 2 tells us, in Jesus is the whole fullness of the deity, all dwelling in bodily form. If that is true, if Christ is God, then his teachings, his commands, his words, his works are infinitely greater than anything else. It exceeds all else. And I know that for many, this claim that Jesus is greater than all else is, again, a closed-minded or even bigoted view. Many believe, I, I know, many believe that Christianity is maybe good for some, but others might decide to believe in other things. However, there is really only two consistent views of Christianity. Either Christ is God, and therefore we must submit to him fully as God, because he is intrinsically, inherently superior to all else. Or we deny all that scripture speaks of in regards to Christ, and as a result, Christ is nothing. He's a crazy lunatic who assumed himself to be God. We cannot be consistent and believe that Christ and Christianity are simply one of many options. Either Christ is superior as God, or he is nothing. So we have the role of Christ. He is the word of God. We have the nature of Christ, which is God. And we also here in this passage finally have the triumph of Christ. Look at verses uh, 3 and 4. After making purification for sin... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, 
is more perfect or more excellent than others. In the end of verse 3, the author says that he sat down at the right hand. What does that mean? Well, again, most biblical commentators agree that this is a reference uh, to the most referenced passage of the Old Testament in the New Testament, which is Psalm 110. Psalm 110.1 is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage, and it says this. It says that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. The Lord says to my Lord. There's a couple interesting things about this passage. The first is, well, who exactly are those two lords? The Lord says to my Lord. Now, the psalmist is uh, here talking about, at least with one of those lords, he's talking about uh, the, the uh, proper name of God. So if you, if you look at Psalm 110, the first Lord is all capitalized. Uh, and whenever you see that capitalized, what's trying to be communicated through English is that it's the proper name of God, Yahweh, being used there in the original language. So the proper name of God is there in, in verse uh, Psalm 110. And that makes sense. But who then is this other Lord? So that the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, what's going on there? Well, that second word for Lord is a more generic word for Lord, which means uh, Adoni, Adonai, which is essentially describing kingship. And this would be familiar to us, I think. We've heard um, when referring to royalty, people say, my Lord. It's a way of describing kingship. So what is taking place there? Well, in Mark 12, Jesus uses Psalm 110 to show that he himself is the messianic king described in Psalm 110. I mean, Psalm 110 could essentially be translated that Yahweh says to our messianic king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Why is that significant? It's because we have God the Father prophetically speaking of God the Son, the Christ, our messianic king. This is a stunning picture of our triune God right here in the Old Testament in Psalm 110. It's speaking of that which would take place many years before, speaking of what would take place many years later as a result of Christ and his first coming. And how does that then show the superiority of Christ? Well, it's because of how it connects the statements of Psalm 110 with Hebrews 1 that Christ sat down. That statement that he sat down was a way of describing the finality of victory. In other words, to sit down is to say, I win. It's a a mic drop. I mean, nothing more is to be added. In the words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. He is described as a victorious king that has come to conquer the enemies of God. Christ holds the victory. Why then would we ever chase after those who seek to give insight into achieving victory when Jesus says, I have the victory, it is done, it is finished? When our messianic king has won it for us. Now all of this together, when we take all these points, the role of Christ, the nature of Christ, the triumph of Christ, Christ is the final word 
as he is God in the flesh, who has come to win complete victory for his people by sacrificing himself. I mean, Christ is superior in every conceivable way, because now God speaks to his, through his Son, making Jesus superior to all the prophets. Jesus is perfect in nature. He becomes the perfect sacrifice because he is superior to all prophets. Jesus defeats the enemies of God on the cross, making him superior to all other kings. This is the point of Hebrews. But this is also what gives us great hope in the midst of turbulence and uncertainty. I mean, as Romans 8 says, if God is for us, this great God is for us, this great God that reveals himself through Jesus, if this great God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, this is our hope. And in the beginning, I asked you a question, and I said we'd be returning to that question, and I want to do that now. If you are a Christian, does your view of Christ reflect his superiority? Does your view of Christ reflect the fact that your Savior is the same glory of God that would have killed Moses? I mean, what awe should we have in thinking then about Jesus if we were to think about him rightly? And probably more than that, what radical changes in who we are, the way we live, the way that we think, what changes would come if we rightly were in awe of him as the glory of God, a triumphant king? If you're not a Christian, I come back to the question I asked you in the beginning. What are your assumptions about Jesus and from where have those assumptions come? If your assumptions is that Christ is merely a good and moral man, a prophet, please know that this is completely inconsistent with everything that Christ claimed to be. And so for all of us, if we do not see him in these terms, who are we missing in knowing? I mean, we're missing the opportunity to know the glory of God, Jesus. You know, I need these truths. And I trust and believe that you need these truths. And this world is broken and violent and full of destruction and pain. I need these truths because there is sickness and death that are constantly crouching around every corner. I need these truths because sin and its temptations are always present. I need these truths because even in the best relationships and circumstances of life, there is still hurt and pain and disappointment that will persist. I need these truths because there are seemingly endless ways to find comfort and security and joy, all of which have proven themselves to be fallible and fickle. I need these truths. I need to be reminded of these truths, that the role of Christ is the word of God, the nature of Christ is God himself, the triumph of Christ as our victorious king provides us great hope that our God is with us, that he sees us, and that he cares. Is what we need, this is what we need, that God by his spirit would lead us to embrace these truths about the son, Jesus. And I pray for myself and for you that we would embrace them fully and find that great hope. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you that you are glorious and mighty. And we thank you that you have revealed that glory in the person and work of our Savior, Jesus. And we thank you that your Spirit leads us to see these great truths, that your Spirit unifies us to our Savior. Lord, that one day we might not ever have to experience your glory through any kind of veiled medium. But as a result of the work of Jesus, we will be ushered in fully and completely and experience your glory when we experience the fullness of your kingdom that is to come. And so would you help us fix our eyes on these things, that it might provide us great hope in this world that is dark, often dark and broken, Restore us to yourself and remind us of these things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.